because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, well, it's been a while. I'll talk about that at the end of the show, uh, but we're back with a guest I'm really excited to have. Uh, if you listen to the show regularly, you'll know that I'm a big fan of introducing and promoting new energy champions in the world, particularly new energy humanists, people who think about the big picture of how energy affects the world uh, from a pro-human perspective. And maybe the most exciting one on the scene from my perspective in the last couple of months has been uh, a character named Doomberg. Now, Doomberg is the anonymous publishing arm of a, here, this is their official description, which I rarely read, but they sent me a good one. A bes- uh, So is the anonymous publishing arm of a bespoke consulting firm providing advisory services to family offices and C-suite executives. Its principles apply their decades of, uh, decades of experience across heavy industry, private equity, and finance to deliver innovative thinking and clarity to complex problems. Read more at doomberg.substack.com. Uh, but Doomberg has been publishing some really, really good, interesting articles with a lot of insight, uh, a lot of it, you know, a lot of it consistent with the way that I think, and I've been learning from it. I know they've been uh, exploding in terms of their Twitter following and their, um, their Substack uh, in particular. And one of the things about them is they are truly anonymous. So when I welcome Doomberg, you're going to see uh, we cannot get Doomberg's face. Instead, we get their increasingly iconic green chicken. So, uh, Doomberg, welcome to Power Hour. Alex Epstein, it's uh, Epstein, I should say. It's uh, really fantastic to be on your show, and uh, really quite uh, quite the honor. And looking forward to a very robust discussion. Having um, listened to several of your podcasts in preparation for today, I know that you're uh, you're an outstanding host, and it's going to be a good time. All right, uh, looking uh, looking forward to yeah you. Um, I had been reading your stuff and then uh, I was in the dentist the other day and I thought, oh, let me, let me listen. Let me see if this guy or woman, you know, no idea what it was. And then I heard you on another podcast and I thought you had a lot of great points. And then I was very flattered because you said, you referred to me as something like a larger than life figure in the, this is all crazy movement, which I found uh, to be a funny uh, way of describing it. So let's, let's get started with you though. So how did you get interested in this uh, this is all crazy movement, or how did you become part of it? Yeah, we, we um, as you said uh, in reading our bio, we're a, a small bespoke consulting firm. We, we come from heavy industry. Uh, we left industry collectively um, several years ago and started our own firm. And um, we, we sort of, the path to Doomberg for us goes through COVID. So we had a, a very healthy consulting business going, um, directed primarily at public company, C-suite executives. And when COVID hit, of course, um, the first thing almost every public publicly traded company did was turn off all variable costs. And as yep. a consultant, you're a variable cost. And so we had, uh, we had gone from, let's say, a record billing month in March of 2020 to losing 85% of our business by the end of May. And that's a big deal. Uh, we have fixed costs and we have families and, and we have uh, ambitions um, that all seem to go away literally overnight for reasons that were- so Just imagine you had that and you were in the public speaking business. Yeah, I that, could that's totally- That's my, my kind of experience yes, at the time as well. I, I could totally sympathize. And so in that moment, uh, which we, we have actually blogged about this, um, every month we put out what we call the work of my life pieces, where we are sharing openly with our audience, our journey as content creators. Uh, we had what we call the high pucker factor moment. So you- you look at each other as a team and you ask yourself, should we fold up shop and go out and get a job? Um, like we had very good jobs before and we left those jobs to create a business um, together. Um, or do we reinvent ourselves? And we decided to reinvent ourselves. And one of the things that we noticed was because of, the, because of COVID, um, this work from home phenomenon was exploding. The entire definition of what work is was changing. And in particular, uh, we had observed that the sort of the, the gig economy for brains was unfolding and, and the, the manner in which people were both entertained and being educated, um, that shift was already occurring, of course, with sites like YouTube and so on. Um, that was only going to be further accelerated. Um, so we sort of started consulting in the content creator business. We started observing what was going on and we realized that not only were our skills applicable to the space, 
from a creator perspective, um, our ability to uh, distill complexity was always highly appreciated by our clients. We could write very well. We could visualize data. We could connect dots and, and execute pretty good pattern recognition for, for our clients and give them a head start on where the news was going as opposed to where the news is. Um, once we applied those skills to the content creator space, we realized that um, you know, in parallel to rebuilding our book of business, which we, we happily did by the end of the year, we were back at the same sort of revenue that we had started with, but we had realized that this was a whole new area that we could potentially participate in. And so we launched Doomberg almost as an experiment. Um, and I, I must confess that it has succeeded beyond all of our wildest imaginations. And I, I think the reason why Doomberg is unique is because we come from heavy industry with decades of experience of how the real world works. And because we don't currently work in industry, we're not beholden to a boss and therefore, um, we are free and willing and able to express our thoughts um, clearly um, on important topics with a potentially different viewpoint, which is from the ground up, from the real world, how things actually happen. And uh, one of the reasons why I think Doomberg has exploded, and, and certainly the reason why we we're sitting here talking to you today, is because one of our expertise is in the energy commodity space and the energy crisis as it unfolded in Europe was something that we've covered quite early predicted many of the things that we're seeing today and we're able to sort of uh, position and or explain to our readers uh, what was going on in a way that they could understand. Makes sense. I mean, maybe a good example to talk through in this respect is you had a recent article that I uh, promoted a bit on Twitter that was about China. And, you know, one of the, the fascinating things about, oh, I mean, it was about China, but more broadly, it was about solar panel prices. And, you know, one of the, the fascinating things to me, fascinating in sort of a bad way, is that there's been this narrative that uh, battery prices and solar panel prices and pretty much the price of everything people want to succeed, or at least say they want to succeed, uh, will decline uh, basically with the same function that prices of computer processing power decline or the prices of hard drive space decline. This never made any sense to me uh, because like, you know, you can have a lot more computing power in the same space with the same amount of material on a chip, uh, but say a solar panel is limited by the uh, power density of the sun, as well as things like night and clouds. And yet there is this narrative that, oh, solar is going to become infinitely cheap batteries will become infinitely cheap. And one thing that started to emerge in the last couple of years is that some of, emerged publicly, I should say, is that some of what's causing this price decline, or at least a lot of it has to do with, well, who's dominating the market? China, how are they doing it? You know, things like cheap coal power, uh, slave labor, uh, subsidizing so they can dump on the international market and win. Um, which you know they're in a, they might want to do, or it's pretty obvious they would want to do. And so you had a really good article about this recently, but I'm, I'm curious, just based on your experience, when you started in your work uh, to observe this, and then how that informs your analysis today. We we um, I in particular, and then another partner in our firm also has pretty significant experience in the space. And uh, I would characterize the types of projections that you refer to. Uh, they fall into a broad category of what we would call things that, quote, work in universities, uh, end of okay. quote. Uh, and the entire purpose of Doomberg is to point out, uh, in many cases, um, how the sort of the critical fallacy or the critical constraint that the um, S-curve type exponential cost uh, improvement projections, uh, where, where those get hung up on reality. And in the case that you're referring to, which is a piece that, that we wrote about called um, Herbie Spoils the Party, uh, we, we make reference to this really great book called um, The Goal, which is sort of a classic book of, of industrial managers. Yes, I, by the way, I've read all of his story yeah. books. Yeah. I like them a lot. My Very favorite is actually book. Critical Chain. Yeah, um, and so you know the Herbie story well. And oh, yeah. Her Herbie, uh, in the case of, of solar production, uh, is the polysilicon market. Uh, to make polysilicon, which is a key input into the creation of a solar cell, requires an enormous amount of energy. You're basically converting sand into very high pure, purity silicon metal. And then you're slicing those things into wafers that then get you know, glued onto panels and, and sold. Um, we were in the solar market when China ruined it. Um, a lot of people think that the price of solar has come down because of innovation. And there's certainly some of that to be sure. But the vast majority, you know, the, the thing that explains uh, the highest percentage of the variance is no doubt the fact that China 
basically took over the production of polysilicon. And um, they did so in the following ways. They stole intellectual property from the West. Um, they built factories to produce polysilicon, leveraging slave labor and cheap, dirty coal. And uh, on top of that, those facilities had minimal to no environmental controls. Uh, and so um, it, is just, it just wasn't competitive for uh, Western-based manufacturers to make polysilicon anymore. It was subsidized and they dumped all over the world. And the interesting thing is China is uh, many things. Uh, one of them is strategic as it pertains to critical economic inputs. And that's a story we've written about several times. Polysilicon is just one of them. We recently wrote a piece about magnesium. We have others in the, in the pipeline. Um, they will subsidize and decide they want to own a certain a critical input, um, which I think they believe gives them some degree of protection from, from the West or the US uh, in the sense that it'd be very difficult from a strategic perspective for the US to engage militarily with China, given the control that they now have over all of these critical raw materials. Um, and so in the, when we were in the market, um, you know, you're routinely confronted with what we, you would call sort of a response to a request for proposal from a, from a customer. And they would say to you, Hey, um, you know, your prices is, is X. Well, I just got a, a response to an RFP at 40% cheaper than you. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you, can you meet that price? And, and we would tell these are very well-known sort of um, name brand um, B2C type, uh, um, you know, producers here in the West that are very happily, you know, bragging about their green bona fides at COP26. And they're looking at you and saying that uh, you need to meet this 40% price discount or else you're going to lose the account. And when you tell them, Hey, uh, I know that factory, they stole our IP. We're currently litigating that. Um, they have no environmental controls and they're, uh, abusing labor. This is not a fair, uh, comp as one would say. And they would say, well, that's just a matter for the courts. Uh, I have this. Uh, this is the offer I'm, I'm staring and you're going to lose the account. And so what happens is you integrate. I'm sorry. That. It's also funny just because it's all driven by it's not like it's this spectacular form of energy that they're like, it, it, like it's really superior, but it's like it's all driven by green mandates. So it's like I can't afford to be green in pursuing my green mandate. And it, well, it's well, yeah. So the procurement teams that oversee the selection of suppliers actually don't really care about green. Right, uh, right, they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're measured on a particular scorecard, which is cost. And um, they don't care if they're buying stolen goods, literally. Um, their answer to you is, well, that's a matter for the courts. Um, and you, know, you, you might, as a supplier, have a, a wide book of business with, with this particular company, and, and you might not want to ruin the entire relationship just for the polysilicon um, or pick your favorite other critical raw material that you might have been back integrated into. Um, you might not have wanted to risk the entire relationship over this one issue. And then you just sort of stack all those up. And 10 years later, you wake up and China controls 85% of the market. And, and in particular for polysilicon and solar, we, we pointed out uh, the piece was really a response to one of these silly think tank um, hundred and some page documents saying that the US could go 100% solar uh, and wind. And we pointed out to them, um, where, where do you suppose that the polysilicon will come from? Um, because you can actually just calculate for each you know, gigawatt installed how much polysilicon that needs. And, I, and I, we showed in the piece that, in fact, U.S. manufacturers of polysilicon until very recently were closing factories domestically. And, and uh, it takes five years and billions of dollars to make one. And the permitting required is, is you know, because the, the same people that proclaim to be pro-renewable or actually anti-development. And so the, the pure permitting and uh, all of the things that go into getting a multi-billion dollar complex chemical facility built, because that's what these are, um, puts Western manufacturers at a huge and sustained disadvantage. And so, um, but even in China, once we pointed out, like this is, this is not a perpetual motion machine. It takes an enormous amount of energy to make purified polysilicon from sand. Um, high-grade quartz is what they start with, but um, that energy has to come from somewhere. And the energy prices that uh, broke out in Europe because they mismanaged their natural gas situation has leaked into China and energy became very expensive in China. And so the first thing the Chinese did was they shut down polysilicon production and, and the price of polysilicon skyrocketed four, five, 600%. Uh, and so a lot of this stuff is just sort of bound by the laws of physics 
um, I should say up front, we have, um, I think there is a place in the energy suite for solar and wind and, and for, especially for nuclear, which is one of the things that I think you and I, um, are most closely aligned on. Um, but at the same time, like there has to be a reality check to these things. And so if, if your plan to, um, radically decarbonize the energy inputs involves a substantial amount of solar, you have, you will very quickly confront the laws of physics and the man, the manufacturing constraints that lay before us. And if you decarbonize before the alternative is ready, you end up in situations like we find in Europe. Um, and so the ongoing energy crisis in Europe lays bare the fallacy of what we sort of would call the big lie, which is that people have been told um, that fossil fuels are terrible for the planet and that global warming is a catastrophe. And all we have to do is the simple switch to these alternatives. And the only reason why we're not switching to those alternatives, which is the big lie, is because evil companies don't want to do it. Um, and so that's sort of where we operate. Um, and, and our unique contribution to the space derives from our ability to understand complex interconnected value chains and point out to people where the constraints will arise. And then when they arise, you, you look prescient. And so I think that that sells well. Uh, I was just trying to find on Twitter something I wrote. You know, I, I sometimes do these how it started, how it's going memes. Mm -hmm. and one, of the, one of the first ones I did, this is back in July, was just capturing the trajectory of this arc. So th this is based on the context you're mentioning. And so it starts with how it started eliminating CO2 will make us richer, no worries, right? And that, that's like, that was the narrative for a little while and it's starting to come undone. Um, and then how it's going, this was referring to, you know, one of these new studies that said to prevent catastrophic climate change, Americans must cut energy use by 90%, live in 640 square feet and fly once every three years. So it's like, so it's how it's going is eliminating CO2 emissions requires us to cut energy use by 90% and fly once every three years. And then how it will go, eliminating CO2 emissions requires us to die. And I think that's kind of the, the trajectory. And what you, what's interesting about the, um, you know, there, there, there's a really interesting moment of choice, I think, as this narrative that the new renewable slash unreliables will make us richer, like as that becomes undone, you really get to see how much did people care, certain people care about low cost energy and the prosperity it generates versus how much do they just want to reduce it at all costs? And you're seeing more of like, oh, start eating bugs. And you don't really need to be that warm in the winter and it builds character. And so I'm finding this to be a very interesting uh, tension. And then uh, to make a historical point, like Ayn Rand had this really interesting point about the left once it became revealed that socialism destroyed productivity and in industry, uh, not fostered it. And she said, well, the left basically has this choice. Are they gonna choose capitalism and productivity and industry or are they gonna choose socialism and destruction? And a lot of them chose socialism and destruction. I'm curious if you've observed the same thing about like how people are going different ways when they see that the green energy isn't actually making us richer. So I, I would argue that um, the, the the phenomenon you're describing of people selecting socialism um, only goes so far. And eventually when the rubber meets the road, I would, I would say that let's say 98% of humans are pro-human. Um, and you know, one of the things that struck me is, is uh, that we were talking before we started recording is I, I'd, I'd known of your work and obviously I'd, I'd seen your Twitter account and I'd seen your great interview on, um, I think it's GB News um, yes. that, that went viral. It's fantastic. And, um, and so in preparation for this podcast, you know, one of the things we always do is if somebody's going to be gracious enough to invite us to go on their show, we, we return the, the gratitude by preparing thoroughly. And so I, you know, I, I bought and read your book, um, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and I listened to the last at least half dozen of your podcasts. And one of the things that struck me was I, I had always assumed when I was a practicing scientist in industry and then leading teams of hundreds of scientists and, and were spending a lot of time, frankly, working on renewable type projects and energy efficiency projects and so on. Um, I had always sort of assumed that eventually the sanity would intervene. Um, you know, the sane among us would say, wait a minute, like a like this is great and we're trying to do this. And we understand, for example, that we need to get our house in order. Um, but I was unaware of the sheer anti-human part of the most extreme 
of the uh, of the anti-fossil fuel movement. And, and in reading your book, you, the, one of the quotes that just struck me was you, you quoted um, David Graeber's review of, of McKibben's book. Right. And, and his review of that book is so shockingly anti-human. Uh, and it ends with, until such time as homo sapiens should decide to rejoin nature, some of us could only hope for the right virus to come along. And it was just sort of so shocking that I, it, it, it never really occurred to me because, again, we're not sort of in the sort of global warming debate directly. Uh, we're in the sort of sanity pro-human debate. Um, it never really occurred to me just how anti-human some of these people are. And, and I wouldn't say that they are representative of, of all of the people in the space, for sure. But my, my response in preparing and in reading that was, uh, okay, you first. Um, like, go ahead and, and exit the planet if you would like. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but then second, like, there's no way that but a very small portion of society would agree with that. Um, and so what we're seeing now in Europe, and we have a new piece coming out, it'll be out, I'm sure, before this publishes about the energy situation in New England. Um, when people are confronted with, I need to shrink my house, drive less, and um, put on heavy wool sweaters because I can't heat my home, uh, they will very quickly revolt. And one of the things that we think is going on in Europe is, is that the European Union itself, if they continue down this path, is in, is in jeopardy of, of disintegrating because there will come a point where um, member countries and or regions within those countries will just not put up with it anymore and the pitchforks will come out. Yeah, it's there's so many interesting things here, and I'm I'm uh, I'm really glad you read Moral Kish Fossil Fuels. I've just finished the final proofing of Fossil Futures, so I hope I can convince you to read that uh, when it's out because I think it's ten times better. Uh, it's also twice as long, but one of the things it really addresses is this anti-human thing, and I think in a much deeper way. And uh, I guess just two quick things about it because uh, there's a lot to talk about. But the I think one thing is people can have, I think it's true that most people are not overtly anti-human. Like they don't, like if given a really clear choice, like this is going to kill a bunch of human beings if we do it. And if we don't do it, a bunch of human beings are going to live. Like people will choose to have the human beings live. But unfortunately, that's like the fact that you would choose that doesn't mean you can't do incredibly anti-human things for many reasons, both because you can be ignorant. So you can think, oh, it's pro-human to do this renewable thing. And yeah, you can catch it at a certain point of near total failure, but you can do huge damage. But then even you can do damage in the future if somebody just makes a new claim and you believe that. So one thing is there's factual ignorance, but I think more importantly, there's values and assumptions that people have that are anti-human. And so one is just that, you know, it's, it's a crucial moral goal to reduce or eliminate our impact. Uh, on earth as a general thing. And, I, and one point I make in Fossil Futures, you know, the number one moral goal in the world today that people uh, subscribe to is eliminating CO2 emissions, net zero. I mean, if you look at corporations, governments, like the number one moral goal they all have in common is we're eliminating CO2 emissions at all costs. And my view is that is not justifiable. If you're thinking about things from a pro-human perspective, you might say, oh, this would be nice, depending on your perspective on CO2. But to make it your overriding moral goal and to not even think about billions of people not having energy, like to me, that's, we've picked up this idea of being green, which really means eliminating human impact. We hold it as a value. We don't fully understand how anti-human it is, but yet it guides our thinking. And one example I cite a lot is that, you know, normally people get totally bent out of shape about a polar bear having to move from one piece of ice to another, but they don't care at all about 3 billion people not having energy until it's really put in front of them. And I think that's how anti-human values can uh, distort people. So that's, I'm curious what you think of that, but that's part of my analysis, how people can do do really anti-human things, both by anti-human values they don't realize are so anti-human, and then just, of course, by ignorance. So I, I would say um, most of it is ignorance, but there's also a phenomenon that we've observed that we've not yet really written about, although I think we did in an earlier piece called Why Are Cows Sacred, um, which sort of refers to the, by the way, just close the loop on that cows are sacred because they're the world's first solar powered uh, rechargeable battery for humans. <laughs> um, they were able to convert, they're, they're able to convert um, incident solar that is lost to humans into uh, milk and cheese and eventually meat. Um, 
there's a, I love there's, that point, by the way. I think that's yeah. such a brilliant point. Like, oh. and, I mean, I thought of it first with pigs. Yeah. Like that uh, pigs can just eat this, this stuff and we manufacture that junk yeah. into energy. But unlike pigs, cows can produce milk. And so they are perpetual. So until they, mm. till they, till they perish, they continuously convert grass into milk, which can be stored as cheese. Um, and the meat is just the final gift they give as they pass. But for right. pigs, you're just raising them for the meat. But back to, back to your point, um, there's what we would sort of characterize as a proximity effect to ethics and empathy. And, and I, this sort of phenomenon dawned on me personally, as I traveled the world as, you know, a senior leader of a large corporation, um, you go to Brazil and you see the, the slums or you go to Mumbai or you go to the rural parts of China and you see how the poor truly live. And when you're driving by them on the highway to the airport in Sao Paulo and you're looking out a window, it's one thing. If they were sitting, if that same child that you're looking at out the window was sitting in your home, well, you would provide it with food and you would you would have an attachment to it. And, and you know, uh, if you're not a psychopath, you would develop empathy for that person. And the only difference between the child I'm looking at outside the window and my own children in my home, aside from the fact that I, you know, I gave birth to help give birth to them is that um, I'm near my children all the time and I've developed deep connection with them. And so if you can become dis disconnected from a human um, then they're just literally nothing but numbers in a spreadsheet. And one of the things that we try to do is to connect the consequences in a real visceral way for our readers to the consequences of poor decision-making. And one of the phrases that we use a lot is energy is life. And um, what the, the price elasticity of demand for energy is literally just the price elasticity demand for life. And if you push that too hard, the only people on the planet who can afford to pay it are the wealthy. Uh, this is truly a debate of the ultra-privileged class on earth. I can assure you that the people in the slums of Brazil or Mumbai or in rural China or in the poorest parts of, of the Western countries, because Lord knows we, we have our own problems here, uh, they aren't really concerned about their carbon footprint. They're concerned about clean water for today, uh, hygiene for today, food for today, and shelter for today. And, and thermal comfort, which is the, the sort of thing we're going to write about in this New England energy piece. You know, there's an enormous amount of energy that goes into providing thermal comfort and taking that away from people means people die. Now, if, if you've never met these people and they're just a label on a spreadsheet, a necessary sacrifice for the good of nature, um, it, it, inexplicable behaviors suddenly become at least understandable, uh, certainly not forgivable, but um, you know, the, the, the proximity effect of ethics and empathy is a really important human phenomenon. And I guarantee that the vast majority of people listening to this, if they came face to face with the true victims of, of sort of um, stupid policy, they would very quickly become angry at that policy. Yeah, it is. It is very powerful. I think so. There's the proximity and part of that is concreteness. So just like having stories, like even if you're not there, just having stories of concrete people that uh, that you can connect to. What, I want to ask one quick follow-up about the solar thing. So when you're analyzing, this is the so when we know broadly that there are these different inputs in the price of solar, we mentioned some of them that makes Chinese solar cheaper, but that prevents it from becoming all that much cheaper uh, in the future. Do you know of any good sources that break that down with any kind of precision? Because I imagine that must exist, but I haven't seen any. Yeah, it, it does exist, but it's not relevant. Uh, and here's why. What does price mean when there's no supply? So literally, you can put an upper bound to the growth rate of future solar installations by the amount of polysilicon production available on the planet. And there just isn't that many. You can see, especially outside of China, there's almost none. Uh, there's three in the US, three mm -hmm. polysilicon plants in the entire US, and you know what their capacities are. And you could look at their permits and you could see their constraints. Um, and so, yes, at today's prices, the you could do a sort of cost breakdown structure uh, where labor and installation costs are a big part of it. You know, the the when we were in the industry, the sort of holy grail was you know one dollar per watt installed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, turnkey soup to nuts, and and the industry has gotten close and perhaps even surpassed that since we've left it, driven primarily by you know the Chinese takeover of polysilicon production. Um, but the labor costs are a wedge in that waterfall that you can measure that are, you know, you can't make that zero. Um, but in reality, if the, 
if the demand for solar as mandated by governments increases uh, beyond the capacity for industry to supply it, then price is irrelevant because there's just no supply. Yeah, that's true. Although, I mean, you could still look at the basic, like, if you just understand the like sort of the, the essentials of what's driving the price, then there's at least the option of yeah. taking measures to scale that. You know, versus, Except, so there's something that's promising versus not promising. So you would need a wholesale invention that circumvented the constraint. Uh, Herbie is a really big fat kid in this story. Um, you know, it, it, the, the, there is a huge, almost immovable constraint in the speed with which solar can theoretically be deployed. And that constraint is polysilicon production. Now, if somebody invents a completely new, you know, material that circumvents the need for high purity silicon, well, that's going to be at least a decade away before all those supply chains get oriented and built out and tested and validated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as it exists today, uh, the, the plant, we, we tell the story of, of, a, of a polysilicon production plant that was just turned on in Tennessee that took five years to build. Uh, where, where is this stuff going to come from? And so once they're at 100% capacity, they'll just raise price and destroy demand. Um, and so, yeah, the inputs into solar are polysilicon. Silver is a big input into solar. Um, you know, the, the encasing materials, those are all fine. Um, and then distribution and installations. In, installing solar on your home or at a commercial site uh, for grid scale type production is a, is a pretty complex job that requires skilled electricians to do. It's not something you would do lightly. Um, it's a fire hazard, for example, the, the manner in which these panels are interconnected matters and how safely and effectively you do it. But in reality, um, anytime we see people projecting an S-curve type deployment um, projection on a heavy industry, we know these are people that have never worked in heavy industry. What did you call it? Works in universities? What was the expression? <laughs> yeah, it, it works in universities. I, I It's... Um, so again, one of the one of the sort of inefficiencies in the market that Doomberg hopes to occupy and take advantage of is the fact that um, in the the big debates of our time, the loudest voices are university professors. Um, university professors are perhaps the least practical among us, the least enlightened. They have, um, you know, I, I I personally have pretty substantial education in the science field. Um, many university professors are highly intelligent and terrible scientists because they actually don't know what science means. Um, and they have a high degree of arrogance and they have a very high degree of certainty in their incorrect, uh, but strongly held opinions. And so a joke in industry, um, you know, if, if you work at an ExxonMobil or if you work at, you know, one of, one of the sort of LNG type, um, companies that do really miraculous and incredibly technically complex work, um, they will chuckle at um, the proposals that come out of American universities, uh, global universities, it's not an American phenomenon. Um, and so one of the phrases that we had in the field was, yeah, it works in universities. Uh, and that's basically a, um, a way to say that there are certain very obvious critical constraints that are currently being ignored by the people pushing this policy. Yeah, one that, that you mentioned early that I, I highlight a lot in Fossil Future, is the green slash anti-development movement, you know, because they're against fossil fuels, they're against nuclear, they're against large-scale hydro, and they're against a lot of the key things necessary uh, to build out solar and wind. And one thing that really bothers me is you see these different activist academics like Jesse Jenkins out of Princeton and a bunch of other, these people who talk about these plans and they'll just mention in passing, oh yeah, we have to radically scale up the building of transmission lines and mining us to really, but like no recognition at all that this is not happening and it's not going to happen because of the movement that they're part of. And yet they're totally happy to say, oh, well, let's eliminate X percent of fossil fuels by Y date, even though the, the alleged viability of that, which is itself problematic, depends on a level of development that the anti-development movement will not allow. It, it's a perpetual motion machine because it also the only way in which it can be done today is through the increased use of fossil fuels, right. which comes at, you know, it's not like we have this surplus of fossil fuels lying around looking for <laughs> right. people to burn them, uh, to convert them into heat or, or chemicals or, or useful materials. Like this is a highly inelastic market that is fully tapped out as the Europeans and the Chinese can attest. And, you know, pick your favorite, energy return on energy invested number for wind or solar. Um, Those are highly political numbers, by the way. Again, uh, university professors are notorious for politicizing their scientific output. 
um, let's just assume it takes four years to get the energy back from a solar panel that it took to create it. Um, that energy has to come from somewhere. And until we have a critical mass of alternative energy or perhaps nuclear, um, it, it's just not going to happen. And, and so th this is why you see the very first thing the Chinese cut when the energy crisis, you know, the, the whip um, that, uh, of the energy crisis that started in Europe snapped on the floor in China. Um, the first thing they cut was high energy intense industries, industries like polysilicon. And so um, this lays bare the fallacy of, of the path function from here to there. And, and so, you know, it's, it's extraordinarily frustrating. And you know, we should talk a little bit about science um, because that's a, fun, know, that's a funny sense. To, 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 to build on this whole university, you know, professors, um, science is not actually well understood by the broad public. Um, people confuse science with technology and they confuse science with intelligence. And science is neither of those things. Science is the systematic nullification of hypotheses until you discover a hypothesis that you can't yet nullify, and then it graduates to a theory. And a theory is nothing more than our current best guess for how the universe works until something disproves it. And science is a practice, and you can be a very intelligent person who is a very poor scientist. Um, and we have plenty of those. I, I went to graduate school at an, an elite university and met plenty of professors for whom I wouldn't trust to cut my lawn. Um, because they, you know, by the way, the, the, the more clever you are um, at times, the, the better you are at faking your science. And there's a huge sort of rolling scandal in universities uh, and in research that people don't talk about, which is this retraction of papers that have been shown to be either fabricated or sloppily done. Um, so science is, a, is, is not technology and science is not intelligence. Science is literally nothing more than the robust and critical nullification of hypotheses in the search of theories that help us explain the universe. And so um, I don't care what your, um, whatever is being debated. And whenever you hear the words settled science, um, you are literally listening to an oxymoron because there's no such thing. Um, all of our theories, even the most cherished ones um, are just one scientific observation away from nullification. And, you know, we wrote a great, uh, well, I thought it was a great piece. <laughs> we wrote a piece um, that began by telling the story of this cold fusion announcement that turned out to be a big scientific scandal. It was, it was essentially fabricated, but Pons and Fleischmann came out with this world changing, enormously critically important um, claim that they had cracked nuclear fusion at room temperature under simple conditions. Um, and if that experiment had been verified and, and repeated and, and reproduced uh, in reputable laboratories, that would, have had, that would have undone an enormous amount of existing scientific theory. And the fact that it couldn't be replicated is the reason why it all fell apart. And that was an example of how the scientific method works. Somebody claimed to have completely unsettled scientific theory and it turned out to be a bunch of BS. Um, and so science is a method and science is not technology, it's not in intelligence. And some of the smartest people I know are, are among the worst scientists in the world. So I agree with some of that and disagree with some of that, but I'm curious, I wanna raise some other things, but why do you think that's so important to emphasize in this context? I mean, particularly, let's just say what we definitely agree on, which is that science is a method. And it's certainly not, I mean, I would emphasize it's not an institution. And I think that's a lot of what drives things wrong. It's just like, oh, this institution, like science means what our knowledge system tells us scientists think. And so then we take that as so, an institution, which, and we have the model of religion as an institution. So we take so it. I, I, bring it up, I bring it up in this context because I listened to your podcast with uh, Bjorn Lomberg and the fact that they are trying to shut his critical observations mm. down proves that this is not a scientific uh, exercise. Mm -hmm. It is the antithesis of science. And in fact, a, a, a you know, we'd like to say a, an honest, a, 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 a genuinely held opinion expressed politely is, is something we'll hear all day long. And, and he is a very polite, very intelligent scientist that has, or, or in fact, uh, your, your interview with Steve Curtin and, and his book um, on settled science, like the words matter. Um, and the fact that Scientific American wouldn't even let him rebut the sort of attack piece that they published against him are prime examples of how 
this sort of movement that we're confronting is in fact, not only anti-human, it's anti-science. And I would tell you that Scientific American is neither scientific nor American. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. it's neither of those things. It's, it's a uh, propaganda rag of the global elite. Uh, and, and Scientific American long ago amongst people in the scientific field that actually practice science as a profession, long ago decided that this was a clickbait magazine no different than, say, Business Insider is viewed for, you know, by people on Wall Street. It, uh, every morning I wake up to an email from Business Insider with some spam title with a clickbait headline, hoping that I'll, you know, um, eventually give them my credit card. This is essentially what Scientific American has dissolved into. And for them to not allow a, a scientist of, of Kunin's, you know, pedigree and, and, and track record to even respond to an ad hominem attack against his really well-researched and critical book is the exact opposite of what science is supposed to be. And history tells us that the track record of anti-scientific movements is over oh, the number of such movements. They're never right. Um, and so that's a big red flag for, for people. And I think it, 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 the behavior is shameful um, and, and you know, needs to be called out. Definitely. All right. And I get there are two more topics in our, our 15 minutes left. So as you've been talking, so I really enjoy you know, in your articles and in this discussion that you have a high level of domain specific knowledge about these things. And so maybe you can help me solve a problem, which bothers me, which is that so, and it relates to something, I mean, in a sense, it's a competitive advantage for you, but it is that there's all of this really good knowledge by and data and explanation and precision among people who are doing energy, let's just stick to energy day to day. So I'll talk with people in energy finance and I'll get some fascinating fact from them or I'll talk to, the worst is electricity. I'll talk to electricity insiders and I'll get stuff from them. And in their case, they're afraid to say it publicly uh, because they just, because there are repercussions. So, you know, if they work at a big utility, investor in utility that has a certain policy, they can tell me, oh, this policy is BS. They won't say it publicly. So there's that element, but more broadly, just, there's so much good information that if packaged properly would be incredibly compelling to the public and yet so much of it doesn't make it there. And so I try to do my own part by having really good researchers, but I've just always been thinking about how, like how can the people with the insider knowledge share it with the people who are really good at communicating it. So just like as an example, during the, um, you know, even take like the, uh, you know, you've been posting stuff and others have been posting stuff about power prices uh, in Europe. And I just took a Germany day ahead price and I just, it's easy to run the numbers. Like if you had to pay this to charge your Tesla and I forget what it was, something like $500. Sure. And that goes pretty viral. And I feel like, you know, there are a few of us who are very good at translating this kind of thing and making it really interesting. I was able to do this a lot during the Texas blackouts. And I think you're combining both like the insider knowledge and the, um, ability to communicate, but I'm curious what you think about, is there a way in general that we can sort of get more of the good knowledge together and then combine that with the communicators? Because I think if that happened, we could generate so much more awareness about the, the truth on these issues. So this is precisely the inefficiency that we are hoping to occupy. So uh -huh. um, we have both domain knowledge, but then the internal capability to rapidly understand new knowledge inbound from other experts that could point us to things that we hadn't yet considered. And then our ability to sort of convert that into um, Substack articles, in this case, that are easily accessible to the non-scientists. And we are directed at a really important class in this debate, which is the investor class on Wall Street, who have been, I think, fooled into supporting these defunding movements because they don't realize the consequences of the decisions they're supporting. Now, there's a couple of phenomenon going on here. We get countless DMs from people with leads on stories we should write, which is great. So we're crowdsourcing domain expertise from the very people you're talking about who either don't have the capability to communicate it in a way that grabs attention, which is fine. And we have that capability on the Doomberg team. Um, but more importantly, I think a greater issue is the vast majority of them are afraid to, which is what you referred to. And so, you know, in some communication you and, and I had before um, we recorded this podcast, I expressed to you that um, we are free from such constraints. Uh, we run our own business. Our clients know everything we do. Um, and uh, we're not in the managerial class hanging out for a few more years until our options vest. Right. And we can retire with, you know, 
seven or eight figures worth of uh, of net of, of of net worth, and uh, let it all let somebody else solve the problem is sort of the mindset. So a lot of people in the know are in the mode of get along to get along. You know, they're going along to get along, um, and they just don't want to rock the boat. They assume that it's so insane that somebody else will intervene. Um, I know for a fact that um, several high-level executives in the industry don't believe what they're saying. Um, they just say it because they know they have to say it on the time frame that matters to them, which is their their options uh, book. Uh, the managerial look, you show show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. I mean, um, Wall Street has instructed industry that they need to sign up for net zero, which is always several years away. And so the immediate consequences of doing it uh, don't become apparent on a time frame that matters to their uh, the you know the duration of their options book. And so these people are just sort of swimming with the current. Um, that that's one class. And the second class is the people that genuinely don't know. Um, and so we're hoping to crowdsource from the people on the inside that do know and then explain it for people that don't know and care enough to learn and are willing to do something about it once they understand it. Um, and so that's a real challenge. But look, I, I honestly believe that um, this is going to resolve itself in a way that is pro-human because 98 plus percent of people are pro-human. <laughs> um, and I view the pulling of the rubber band by the, some of the dumb decisions that we're seeing play out today as nothing more than increasing the violence of the snapback when people wake up and realize the consequences of the policy errors that we're making. Uh, and so to the extent that we can help people avoid that, um, we'll play a small role in it, you'll play a larger role in it, um, but that's, it has to happen eventually. We, we are going to run the experiment on CO2 because people won't put up with the consequences of not doing it. Uh, I think the EU could disintegrate. I think um, revolutions will happen. If you starve people of the ability to maintain a, you know, their thermal comfort, um, fresh water supply and food at a reasonable price, if you take that away from people, they will revolt. And, and the people taking it away from them are the wealthy elite who don't understand or don't care about the consequences of the decisions they're, they're pushing forward. And that can't last. And so it's gone a lot further than I would have. I mean, if you would have told me that the price of natural gas in Europe would spike to $60 per million BTU uh, in you know early December, mid-December, before winter has even settled over the continent, I, I would have laughed at you. But here we are just one or two years into this crazy carbon tax scheme that the Europeans have imposed on themselves, uh, we're seeing directly viscerally what price elasticity of demand for life is and who can afford to pay it. So last thing I want to ask about is, is Europe. So give us, so this is a thing where there's clearly a lot of bad stuff happening, but I still don't think the general public, particularly in the US, is getting anywhere near a clear picture of it and certainly not learning lessons from it. So how using your knowledge and communication skills, would, would you sum, summarize the arc of what's been happening? And you can start anywhere in time you want yeah. in order to explain the present. So Europe is um, what we sort of call sort of the exception that proves the rule. Um, their policy errors are so profound and, and, and compounding on each other that they have essentially broken their economy. Um, so the entire economy is currently driven by fossil fuels and um, people sort of, you can say that in words, but when it reduces down to real consequences, the understanding becomes quite visceral. So through a comedy of errors, Europe found itself with far less natural gas in storage and access to existing supplies of natural gas to heat itself through this winter. And, um, we see very quickly that the price of natural gas in Europe skyrocketed four, five, six, seven hundred percent. Well, we know from our experience that natural gas is not just used to heat homes or to create electricity. Natural gas is the critical input into several life critical um, supply chains like fertilizer. And so we wrote a piece several months ago now called Starvation Diet that connected the dots between the natural gas crisis in Europe to the fertilizer crisis that we're now seeing unfold uh, all over the world. And then uh, we wrote another piece called How to Brick an Entire Economy, because it turns out that um, because of emissions control, which we're all for, um, essentially um, diesel truck drivers are using fertilizer as part of their um, emissions abatement um, protocols in their trucks. And if you run out of 
um, urea, which is the key material that is going into these trucks, you then stop the delivery of food and goods and services across an entire economy, which is what's occurring in Australia if, if they don't get their act together. And so if you can connect the dots for people in a real way, natural gas spiked in Europe, fertilizer plants in Europe have shut down, the price of fertilizer is skyrocketing, which means American farmers are paying six times what they were paying last year for fertilizer, which means they're going to either plant a lot less food or yields are going to disappoint uh, or costs have to go up. If you can draw the direct line between Europe's decision to not fill their natural gas storage units and to um, stunt the production of fossil fuels and to uh, get into a geopolitical war with Vladimir Putin, who now controls all of the energy cards over Europe. If you can connect those dots directly to, I'm paying 25% more on my grocery bill at the local you know, um, food chain in middle America, then it becomes very real. And those are the stories that we try to tell uh, in Doomberg and, and the European energy crisis directly tied into China. The, the world is a hyper interconnected, globally sensitive set of supply chains. Natural gas is at the core, at the center, at the very center, Alex, of all of those supply chains. And you can't have $60 per million BTU natural gas in Europe without every single person in the world feeling the consequences of it. And we will. We're seeing urea, ammonia, um, various other fertilizers spiking costs, which then led to China limiting the exports of phosphate, which is sort of the other half of fertilizer, um, Russia limiting the exports of phosphate. Um, everybody sort of um, puckers up and decides to try to protect their domestic industries because of the things we talked about earlier. China owns all the critical domestic industries. And so when they shut off urea, Australia's entire economy is on the verge of bricking. So this all flows from one small part of the world, Europe, getting their energy policy completely wrong. And, um, and now they're doubling down on it. Like just this week, um, more nuclear power plants in Germany are being taken offline. Where's that, where's that electricity going to come from? Um, you know, we wrote a very provocative piece called Have Fun Staying Cold. Um, that's what's going to happen in Europe. Uh, and, and we are led by people who don't know the basics. I mean, we wrote a piece about Boris Johnson not knowing that um, there's a difference between thermal cold and metallurgical coal, and that metallurgical coal is needed to make steel, which, by the way, is needed to make wind turbines. Um, and, and they're opposing metallurgical coal developments, which will cripple the potential for the wind industry to grow. You know, this, this is all sort of policy by platitude. And, and we had a, a tweet go viral, which, which uh, on New England, that basically ends with, you know, in the war between platitudes and physics, physics is undefeated. Right. I remember, I, I think I retweeted that and then uh, commented on it because, you know, part of it for me is just that the, yeah, the physics is always undefeated in practice, but it's like the platitudes uninformed by physics create these policy physics in effect where you actually can't do things. And that's, yeah. that's what's. But those are temporary. Yeah. Those are temporary, Alex. And I, and I would say, you know, to leave people on an encouraging note, uh, I would say that um, much like democracy is sort of the, you know, the, is where we settle after trying all the other options. I do believe that um, ultimately um, intelligent humans will intervene and the pro-human cause will succeed. Um, and frankly, to, to believe otherwise is, makes it harder to get out of bed, but I, we're very <laughs> optimistic. Um, we do think that once people realize, look, there are paths to reducing our impact on the planet, which we should all support, that don't involve killing a billion people. And we should pursue those paths. And we should pursue abatement strategies for when we can't fully um, you know, um, minimize the consequences we have on the planet because the cost of abatement is almost certainly much less than the cost of avoidance. And once we've tried all the bad op options, we do believe in the human spirit and that it will prevail and that uh, ultimately we will find the right path. Well, so I don't, I don't think of it pessimistically. I mean, I just think of it as, you can think of it as a continuum, but it's a pretty dramatic continuum. I mean, even today, you know, look at what anti-human impact, anti-development policies have done to poor parts of the world. I mean, I'm very confident there are billions of people who are worse off now than they would be 
without the green movement. And so, you know, the people that it tends to hurt the most are the people, particularly now, people who haven't gotten started, like with China and India, they're not as susceptible to being stopped by us now, but take like the, the kinds of pressures we put in Africa and, and other really poor places. Like it's, it's, really, it's really scary. And so if you take about like, am I worried that I'm gonna die on the street? No, but I, I really try to keep in context the fact that I'm lucky, lucky to be like a financially successful person in basically the richest country in the world. And just always thinking, okay, there are 5 billion people right now who make less than $10 a day. And all these things have a huge impact on them. So I don't, I don't think at all in terms of like the world is going to end, everyone is going to do, like these things are actually going to be pursued. But I think everything that can be done to make us have more rational policies is, is good. And so in, in a sense, that's very motivating to me that it's possible I can do a lot, but even anything I do makes things better. And that's part of why I'm excited to bring uh, you know, you, you know, you to the attention of my audience to the extent you're not already and promote more energy humanist energy champions. Uh, because I do think that every additional one makes is, is like a very high leverage thing today. And then if you believe that progress compounds, which it does, then everything we do to liberate energy today makes the rate of progress faster uh, for the future. Yeah. And th these regions won't put up with it, Alex. So I, ultimately one of the big conclusions from COP26 was the refusal of um, these not yet fully developed parts of the world to succumb to um, the, these provably poor pathways. And that gives me some hope. Um, I, I do believe that, um, you know, we, we should be responsible uh, as we, you know, develop energy sources and, and push humanity forward. We, we, you know, we all exist on this planet. It's, it's, it's like a game of Jenga. You can't take pieces from the bottom and put it on top. You have to be, you know, responsible. Otherwise the whole thing collapses, but there is a path there is a path forward that will ultimately be chosen, but I do think there will be, you know, you, you just have to see some damage like we're seeing in Europe today and, and in China before people come to their senses. But I agree with you to the extent that we can help catalyze more and more voices to participate in this debate in an intelligent and polite way, um, the better. And, and if we could circumvent choosing all the wrong answers before we settle on the right one, that would be great. So, well, how to follow you is pretty much on the screen as you've been talking, doomberg.substack.com. Anything else people should know about how to follow your work or how to engage with you? Yeah. And I should say, I really very appreciate, very much appreciate the opportunity to be on your show, Alex. And um, we are at, you know, doomberg.substack.com, which is our primary outlet, but we're also on Twitter. Um, our handle is at doomberg T. Um, T stands for terminal. Um, the, the subtitle of Doomberg is Chicken Little Gets a Terminal, which is our brand. Um, we, we use our Bloomberg terminal a lot to um, you know, make charts and show people the consequences of the things we write about. Um, but yeah, we, we have a lot of fun. We've got a growing Twitter handle. We, we, we love your stuff as well. And, um, and so that's the two main places that we exist in the metaverse today. And how do people get in contact with you for business stuff? Um, well, they could um, email us uh, via the Substack so they can reply to our Substacks. But actually, we're kind of full on business and we are uh, turning away clients today. We, oh, that's always when people want you. Yes, uh, the price goes up. You know, we're going to destroy demand with price. But no, um, in all seriousness, like solar. Our, our objective is to make Doomberg our business. And um, when we take inbound requests for work, we have to measure the opportunity costs of that distracting us from building out the Doomberg brand. Um, the work of my life is Doomberg. The work of our lives as a team is Doomberg. Um, the beauty of Doomberg is that it's just us, relies on nobody. Nobody could take away 85% of our business because of COVID. Um, we do believe that the content creator space is exploding. We want to be part of it. We want to help lead it. And, um, and we, we've studied you and studied every other content creator we can get our hands on. And we're truly treating Doomberg like a business uh, and all the respect and professionalism that comes with that. And so um, we're not truly soliciting business from the consulting side, because if we execute uh, in 2022 in the way in which we have planned, uh, we won't need it because Doomberg will be the thing we do. And what a great way to live. Yeah. Well, speaking from experience, uh, I can say as somebody who transitioned from doing mostly consulting to almost exclusively talking to the public, uh, I definitely prefer the latter and other people prefer it as well. <laughs> so it'll be, be great to have you know, all of your abilities going toward explaining these things toward the public instead of sort of straddling yeah. behind the scenes, advising, and then explaining. Yeah, I can tell you this, uh, Alex, uh, Doomberg doesn't feel like work. 
Uh, and I, you know, we could do Doomberg 24 hours a day. I, I wake up thinking about the next Doomberg piece, checking our analytics on social media, wondering about what we're going to write about next, preparing for the next podcast appearance. None of it feels like work. All of it is, is thrilling. And I, I, I truly appreciative of all of our followers, all of our email subscribers and um, any podcast host that will have us on like you. Um, it's truly the work of our lives and it's, it's infectious, it's contagious and uh, we couldn't fake it if we tried. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and we will stay in touch. You bet. Thanks again to Doomberg for joining me. A couple of updates. If you're a regular listener, you've probably noticed that uh, I haven't been on the regular schedule for the last month or so. So I've been meaning to send out a notice about this, but I'm going to be on a less consistent schedule for at least the next few months. I have a bunch of uh, writing projects and other things that I want to do, plus being on a lot of other people's shows. So uh, I'm not going to be able to make the every two weeks like clockwork rhythm to the extent I was on that before, but I'm going to keep doing new power hours as interesting guests uh, arise. So feel free to recommend people that I should uh, talk to. And you can always email me at alex at alexepstein.com with that, or as I like to put it, any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail. Uh, other things that are up, the energy talking points substack is going really, really well. That's where I'm concentrating a lot of my effort. So you can sign up at alexepstein.substack.com. And also please, please, please share it with others. You know, this is a several times weekly source of ammunition. It's really quick. Uh, it's free. It's just something that I think so many people can use. And so if you have a list, um, it would be great. Or, you know, you broadcast it on, on one of your um, platforms the profiles, or if you have a list, it'd be even more effective if you just say, hey, there's this great new resource, Energy Talking Points by Alex Epstein. You can sign up for free at alexepstein.substack.com. So appreciate that very much. I'm recording this on New Year's Eve day. So last night I sent in the final proofs of Fossil Future to my publisher. As I've talked about before, I mean, the book was already essentially done, but there's just a lot of proofreading and that kind of thing and just getting little uh, technical things done. So that's really exciting to be done with that after starting it in 2018. I'm so happy with how it's turned out. So I'm just so excited for everyone to be able to read it starting on April 19th. Um, let's see what else. I think that is what I wanted to cover. Um, Sign up for, if you want to sign up for the newsletter or sign up for energy talking points or Substack, now it's all connected to my Substack. You can just go easily at energytalkingpoints.com and there's a Substack sign up there. Also, we've been updating it. So there's lots of stuff there. Uh, you can search for basically any topic and it will bring you uh, usually some really good information with good references. So make use of that and share it with others. Uh, finally, since it's the end of the year, I hope that you had a really good year and I hope that you're excited for the next year. Uh, for me, it's, it's a particularly cool time because over the past few years, I've had several projects that I've been working on a lot behind the scenes. So I've been working on Fossil Future for three years and I've been working on energy talking points. That's been a little bit more public, but there are a lot of behind the scenes components. I've been building that out for the last, uh, I guess, year and a half now. And I've also created something some of you might be interested in. I have an uh, app that I've created called Thoughtful with my friend and co-founder, Brian Amaridge. If you want to learn more about that, the best way is just to go. I share uh, information about it on my Twitter. So twitter.com slash Alex Epstein. And if you go to one of, I often will have a, a link that you can use. And so then you can sign up and it's, it's been unavailable for most people to sign up for the past couple of years. We've really been refining it, but uh, I would say uh, check it out. And the basic, the basic idea of it is this is one place for everything good. So we think of the internet as it's got all this amazing content, but it's like gold in the ocean. There's a ton of gold in the ocean that's worth trillions of dollars, but it's so diluted by everything else. And we think of really great content on the internet as there's an amazing amount, but it's diluted by so much else. And what Thoughtful does is it helps you find more of it and then spend time uh, on more of it uh, through a bunch of really kinds of useful tools. 
that we have, including like we can bring all of your favorite podcasts and blogs and Substacks and YouTube channels all into one place and you can consume them in this one undistracted place. And at the same time, there's this growing thoughtful community where everyone is recommending what they think is really great content. So that combined just makes it a totally unrivaled place for stuff that really enriches your life and doesn't waste your life. So that sounds like a good fit for you. Go to Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash Alex Epstein. And I've been posting about it a lot. I'll continue to post about it a lot. So you can just find a sign up link and test it out. Uh, the other quote unquote project I've been working on for the past several years is not in the exact same category, but a very important or more important one, uh, which is I've been with the same uh, lovely woman for five years and I asked her to marry me recently and she said yes. So that is very, very exciting. Uh, so I'm going to start planning wedding, family, that kind of thing. So uh, another thing where, you know, very enjoyable uh, project and expected to continue to be enjoyable uh, forever. So hopefully uh, that is exciting news to some of you and not too much of a distraction from our regular uh, content. Finally, uh, since I've been talking about long-term projects and in particular fossil future, I want to thank all of the accelerators who have provided funds for research and development and promotion, but particularly research and development. Uh, without the uh, money that you've been providing over the past several years, I could not have invested nearly as much as I did into fossil future. So I'm sorry you can't see fossil future yet, but when you see it, I think you'll be uh, very, very happy about your investment, so to speak. And if anyone wants to become an accelerator or wants to give another contribution, you, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate, and this will go to more R&D and promotion in the future. All right. I hope you have a great uh, New Year's Eve, New Year, uh, New Year's Day, and New Year. If you want any kind of guidance on some personal development stuff, if you're interested in my perspective on that, uh, check out my other podcast, The Human Flourishing Project. I haven't done a new one in a while, but I have, I think, 98 episodes, so plenty of things on my views on New Year's resolutions and everything else. All right, that is it for this week. I'll be back sometime in the not-too-distant future with another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.